Jesus said in Matthew 28 verse 19, Go therefore and teach all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Ghost. Welcome to Go Teach All Nations, bringing you Christ's teachings through Australian and international speakers. And here is today's presenter, Pastor Rod Anderson. Our topic tonight is the From Sabbath to Sunday and Historical Perspective. And uh, we're going to track the way that Sunday came into the Christian family. Now, as we review the book of Acts and the early history of the Christian church, we see that the opening labors of the early Christian church brought the disciples and followers of Christ. It was attended with joy and rich reward in the, fa- in, the, in the sense that success attributed their evangelistic efforts and people came in and accepted that Jesus Christ was the Messiah. But by the same token, their missionary exploits were often faced with bitter criticism and also danger and hardship. The disciples themselves had to contend against bigotry, against hatred, against prejudice. But mind you, Jesus Christ warned the disciples that this would be the case. This would what happened when people truly follow him. In Luke chapter 21, verse 17, we read this. Jesus said, you shall be hated by all men. For what reason? For my name's sake. The history of the early Christian church testified to the Saviour's words. The powers of secular rulers, the Roman prejudice, the pagan cults and the Roman authorities all arrayed themselves against Christ in the person of his followers and disciples. Persecution against the Christian church began after the ascension of Jesus Christ in 31 AD. And it first began among the Jews. And soon after, we see the Christianity spread into neighboring nations. It went beyond the border of Jerusalem and it attracted the worshippers of those cults in which they found themselves witnessing. Paganism could see that if the gospel was to triumph, her altars and her temples would be swept away. And so strong opposition arose and it turned into outright persecution. Probably the most dramatic and the most well-organized was that which originated initially by Nero. The year is 64 AD. The capital of the world, Rome, is aflame. For six nights and six days, the great fires roar out of control through the most populous districts of the city of Rome. Nero's desire is to rebuild a more wonderful, a more lavish city. And it is widely rumored that Nero himself is responsible for the lighting of the fires. However, to divert attention away from himself, Nero lays the blame at the feet of a new group that has entered, that's made itself known in Rome, the Christians of Rome. You see, the Christians were Nero's logical choice. They're already distrusted. They're already despised by the populace. They don't participate in the worship of the pagan gods. They don't participate even in the social life of the Roman people. So there's a lot of bigotry. There's a lot of hatred already directed against the Christians at this time. They shun the worship of the pagan gods. So Christians were falsely accused and labeled and 
large numbers of them were burnt in the fires in the uh, Colosseum and were torn apart by wild animals and dogs in the amphitheatres. Now, the reality was that following the martyrdom of many of the key leaders in the Christian church, and I'm talking about the disciples now, uh, many followers fell into discouragement. That was the reality. They saw their leaders, their motivators, those who who had spoken to Jesus. They'd seen them either either murdered or has gone, gone off continuing their missionary exploits elsewhere. And those who remain behind, Jerusalem, in Antioch, in places like Rome, in these sort of places, some of these Christians became quite discouraged and they become subject to false teachers that the Apostle Paul warned about in Romans Acts chapter 20 and verse 28. He says, therefore, take heed to yourselves and to all the flock to shepherd the church of God. For I know this, that after my departure, savage wolves will come in among you, not sparing the flock. Also, from among yourselves, men will rise up speaking perverse things to draw away the disciples after themselves. See, persecution continued throughout the Roman Empire after Nero. Nearing the end of the first century, the Emperor Domitian instituted and desired a uniformity of worship. And he also wanted people throughout the empire to burn a pinch of incense. Now, this was to publicly demonstrate their belief that the Roman emperor, Domitian, was divine in origin. And it was also to show that they were part of the public system and there was, and there was cohesion within the Roman empire. But Christians, of course, refused to do this. And it cost them dearly. It costs them their freedom and eventually it costs them their lives. You see, throughout the, throughout the Roman Empire, we see that Christians were imprisoned, they were tortured and they were murdered. They lost their possessions, they lost their uh, positions at work, they lost their um, uh, property. It was removed from them as the forces of of popular Judaism as the forces of paganism as the forces of the Roman Empire all arrayed themselves against the followers of Jesus Christ in their attempt to wipe out the fledgling movement the bloodiest of all persecutions happened and in 303 AD this was inaugurated by Emperor Diocletian and it raged for 10 years you see he too desired the uniformity of worship and And he desired that people would pay homage to the Roman emperor, an image of the Roman emperor. Again, Christians refused this. They became outlaws throughout the whole of the Roman empire. They lost their writings. They lost their properties. It's just a repeat of what had happened in earliest persecutions. But the difference was this, that after 303 AD, we come to 312 AD, and after 10 long years of brutal uh, persecution, we see that the persecution is still raging on. But there was a change and it came in almost overnight because on October 28, 312 AD, Emperor Constantine met with the Bishop of Rome. His name was Pope Miltiades. And he tells him that just before 
his victory at Melvane Bridge, which saw him become the sole ruler of the Roman Empire, he saw a flaming cross in the sky. And beneath the cross, there were these four words, in hoc signo vincens, meaning in this sign conquer. And so Emperor Constantine then marched his armies through the river there at Melvane Bridge. He baptized them. This was his form of baptized for them. He then fought the battle under the name of the Christian God and eventually he was successful. Constantine then became the sole ruler of the Roman Empire. And in fact, in appreciation of the victory, he gave Pope Mutiades the opulent Lateran Palace there in Rome. In 314 AD, Pope Miltiades died. And at his burial, at his funeral, he was clothed in all the imperial raiment, with all the pomp, with all the uh, the ceremony of an earthly priest. The position of the church was changing, and it was changing quickly. In fact, prior to the death of Miltiades, in 313 AD, Emperor Constantine issues the Edict of Milan, which was the Declaration of Tolerance. Now Christians could freely worship without the fear of persecution. They could even practice their religion openly. This is something that hadn't been done for hundreds and hundreds of years. And in fact, in 324 AD, amazingly as it sounds, but Emperor Constantine made Christianity the the formal religion of the empire. Things had changed. The leading possessions within the government now went to Christians. Constantine surrounded himself with Christians who were his advisors, who were his chief officials. And Christians in decades prior to this time could not have believed it could happen. There's been a complete about face. Suddenly Christianity has become the flavor of the time, so to speak. The emperor himself has also become an emperor. It's unheard of, it's impossible, but it was true. They couldn't believe it, but it was true. It was simply too good to be true, but it was true. But listen, as persecution ceased and Christianity entered the courts of the palace of kings, she laid aside the humble garb of Jesus Christ and the followers uh, and the disciples for all the pomp and for all the pageantry of the state. We see that the pagan rulers and priests wanting to gain the favor of the emperor, Constantine, nominally converted to Christianity and great waves of these unconverted pagans flood into the church in order to secure the favor of of the emperor at that point in time. We see that the simple teachings of the Bible start to become and had already become but had started to become corrupted in a very powerful way way at this time with pagan thoughts, with pagan teachings entering the Christian family. Emperor Constantine also at this point in time, he opens the great wealth of the Roman Empire and begins a huge church building program throughout the Roman Empire. You know, up to this point in time, Christians typically met in houses or in caves in secret places because it was outlawed. The ministers of the gospel uh, are now being paid by the state itself. It's the first time it happened. Prior to this point in time, the ministers would labor, they would work for themselves 
and they would they would uh, pay their own way, so to speak, but not anymore. They're paid by the church. And while some people would say that Christianity was the conqueror, the reality is that the spirit of paganism had entered the church and had gained control of the church. The church leaders, once known as the watchmen, the overseers, take upon themselves the name of priests after the pagan form. And Emperor Constantine could see that it was to his political advantage to unite the pagans and the Christians. He could see that it was to his advantage to bring them together. The, the empire at this point in time is breaking up. It's, it's becoming um, uh, uh, stressed. And so Emperor Constantine, in an act of political desire, wants to unite pagans and Christians to do that, to do. And in order to do that, he institutes the first Sunday law recorded in in history. In fact, his Sunday law came in in 321 AD, in which he said that instead of Christians, instead of Christians worshipping on the Sabbath, they'll now worship in honour of the resurrection. So they will worship the S-O-N on the day of the S-U-N, Pagans themselves were encouraged to become Christians themselves. Instead of worshipping the S-U-N, they were to worship the S-O-N on the day of the solar sun. In fact, I have a part of this uh, edict which was uh, legislated by Emperor Constantine for the whole empire. And it says this, this is the edict, this is the command to uh, venerate Sunday. It says this, On the venerable day of the sun, let the magistrates and people residing in the cities do what? What does it say there? Let them rest and let all workshops be closed. So there's no activity on Sunday anymore. It says, In the country, however, persons engaged in agriculture may freely and lawfully continue their pursuits because it often happens that another day is not so suitable for grain sowing or for vine planting. Lest by neglecting the proper moment for such operations, the bounty of heaven should be lost. The source there, and you'll have all the sources when you go out uh, this evening, you're going to have plenty of information that you'll receive. Because remember, the truth has nothing to fear from investigation. Uh, We are transparent, and I want you to be able to go back and check the sources that I've used. But now we learn that the Roman secular government by Constantine legislated the first Sunday law. Nevertheless, despite that, Sabbath keeping continued throughout the empire. In fact, most of the Christians continued to worship on the Sabbath day, defying the imperial edict and also the paganized church. Now, here is a quote from a a Christian, uh, from a historian of the uh, 18th century. His name is Lyman Coleman. He wrote this book in 1852. It's called Ancient Christianity and he traces the history of the church. But he says this, down even to the 5th century, now remember, that the law of Constantine 
was uh, enacted in the 4th century, but he's talking about the 5th century. He says, down even to the 5th century, the observance of the Jewish Sabbath was continued in the Christian church. Let's pause here for a moment. It's saying that the Christian Sabbath was continued right up until the 5th century. You know there are Christians today who say as soon as the Christ, of Jesus Christ died, Christians start to worship on Sunday. This contradicts this quote here, but there are many, many historical references by highly reputable historians who actually challenge that whole premise. Down even to the 5th century, the observance of the Jewish Sabbath was continued in the Christian church, but with a rigor and solemnity gradually diminishing until it was wholly discontinued. Now, this is what Lyman Coleman says, but we see from this quote here that the Sabbath was kept by Christians well after the time of the apostles, well after the time of Emperor Constantine, but outside forces arrayed themselves against the Sabbath-keeping church, which made it increasingly difficult to worship on the Sabbath day openly where the Roman Catholic Church had uh, had authority. For example, this is a quote from an historian by the name of Socrates. Now, Socrates was a 5th century historian. Now, he should not be confused with Socrates, the Greek philosopher. Socrates, the Greek philosopher, was born in Athens around 470 BC. But this Socrates was born in Constantinople. He was a Christian and he was born around about 380 AD. But this is what he says. For although almost all churches throughout the world celebrate the sacred mysteries on the Sabbath every week. Now remember, he's a Christian from Constantinople. And he says, for although almost all churches throughout the world celebrate the sacred mysteries on the Sabbath every week, he says, yet Christians of Alexandria and at Rome, on account of some ancient tradition, have ceased to do this. What you have to understand, and I'll talk about it more in a moment, is simply this, that in Rome and Alexandria, Christians in the mid part or the mid to late part of the first century, because of the animosity directed towards the Jews and because the day of worship was something that was shared by the Jews and Christians, Christians decided the best way to protect the fledgling movement was to distance themselves away from Christians and this was in Rome and Alexandria. So what they decided to do was that they would worship on the day of the sun, on the first day of the week. It didn't have any biblical impetus. Uh, It was done in an order to survive it was merely for, for, for survival. And despite the very good reasons, the reality is it's not supported in the scripture. But this man, Socrates, he says, listen, this change happened about 500 years ago, 450 years ago, but we don't even know why it, ha- why it came into force. But he talks about almost all the churches without the wor- throughout the world celebrate the Sabbath. So the Sabbath is still in in. in place despite what Emperor Constantine has instituted in 321 AD. As we have a look at church history, we'd actually discovered that there were many, many people who continued to worship on the Sabbath, even after the time of Constantine's imperial edict. But in 364 AD, there was a council 
It was called the Council of Laodicea. The the, the great churchmen of the day came to Laodicea, which is in modern day Turkey. And one of the issues, one of the things that they dealt with was this, this order by Emperor Constantine, the state church ordering Sunday worship. So what they did is they enforced the decree of the state and put the ecclesiastical seal of approval by the church upon this state law. And we're going to read about it shortly. But that's interesting to me that despite the fact that the state church, and we're talking about the Roman Catholic Church now, and despite the the fact that the state itself was enforcing uh, Sunday worship on Christians, the majority of Christians continued to worship on the Sabbath day. So as I said, the majority of Christians continued to worship on the Sabbath day. But during the same century of Constantine, the, the prestige of the state church, the church in Rome, was further heightened. You see, Emperor Constantine decided that he wanted to remove the capital of the Roman Empire, the Roman Imperial Empire, from Rome to Constantinople. And from that point on, in 324 AD, when this, was, when this came in, the, the Roman empire was governed from the Bosphorus but this left a vacuum if you like in Rome the the once great center the great city which ruled the whole world but I want to tell you it was quickly filled by the bishop of Rome and the logic goes along this ways uh, that it's natural that the pagan world was governed and ruled from Rome it's only now natural that the Christian world should be led and directed by the ecclesiastical fathers of the faith from the self-same city that is Rome. And in fact, the position of the church was further heightened in 533 AD because we see that Emperor Justinian, who was ruling from the east at that time, from Constantinople, he wrote a letter to Pope John II. Now, as I said, this letter was written in 533 AD. But in that letter, he gives all authority to the Bishop of Rome to rule the Christian Empire. Notice this. It says, we hasten to bring to the knowledge of your holiness. Now, this is Emperor Justinian writing to Pope John II. We hasten to bring to you the knowledge of your holiness, everything relating to the condition of the church, as we have always had the greatest desire to preserve the unity of your apostolic see. So even though the capital of the Roman Empire has now moved to the east, to Constantinople, The intention of the Roman Empire is to have Christianity uh, governed by the Holy See, by the pontiff of Rome. Then it says, therefore, we have exerted ourselves to unite all the priests. So it says we have exerted ourselves. So this is something that just hasn't happened naturally. They've pressed, they've pushed for this to happen. Therefore, we have exerted ourselves to unite all the priests of the East and subject them to the see of your holiness and according to the doctrine of your apostolic see. And are constantly, firmly observed and preached by all priests, we, for we do not suffer anything which has reference to the state of the church to be discussed without being brought to the notice of your holiness, because you are the head of all the holy 
churches. Did you get that? It says that the Bishop of Rome, by state decree, is now the head of all the Christian churches. It was a decree which eventually came in in 538 AD. The delay was due to political instability, but men and women seeking to be faithful to God's word, seeking to be faithful to the Sabbath, had to seek the remote places of the empire so that they could practice their religion uh, in in a peaceful uh, manner. But the historical fact remains that the the time of the Roman Catholic Church's domination, and when I use the word Catholic, the word Catholic just means universal. In other words, the Roman Catholic Church became the church for every Christian and for every Christian family. But what we see from the rise of this this position of absolute authority in 538 AD all the way down to 1798, this is not our study tonight, but we see during this thousand plus years, the Roman Catholic Church given absolute power and support of the state became as draconian as any, any oligarchy, any junta or any dictatorship of modern history. That's just the reality. It became absolute in its enforcement of doctrines at the peril of people's lives. We even find that for a period of over a thousand years, the Bible was chained to church walls, to monastery walls. It was a period of incredible intolerance to those who would dissent from the Roman Catholic line of authority. And history supports what I'm sharing with you here. It's easy to do. But the Bibles, the handwritten Bibles, as rare as they were, were nailed and were chained to the walls, as I said, of monasteries and also of churches. So, And as a result, Christianity became the chief depository of pagan superstition and practices. But hidden within and without the Roman Empire, when we have this period where of this state religion dominating, we find people who want to remain faithful to the Bible actually transcribe the Bible in their own tongues and then they would travel disguised as silk merchants or traders of some descriptions and the Waldensians were one such group of people that would share little tracts and share pieces of the Bible which they'd hand handwritten hand copied and give it to those people who they believe may be interested now this is a quote from one of the greatest popes that ever lived in fact he's known as Pope Gregory the Great. He lived in the 7th century and this is what he says. It's very illuminating to the uh, situation of Sabbath keeping in those days. Remember, this is the 7th century. This is about 300 years after Constantine's edict. It says this, It has come to my ears that certain men of perverse spirit have sown among you some things that are wrong and opposed to the holy faith. Now, what was the holy faith? It's the Roman Catholic faith. So as to forbid doing any work done on the Sabbath day. Now, here it's referring to the Sabbath. What else can I call these but preachers of Antichrist? See, you have to understand 
that he is showing an intolerant attitude to these people who rest on the Sabbath day. And this is the seventh century. Have any of you heard of the Galatians? Well, for those who are familiar with the Bible, we have a book in the New Testament called the uh, book of Galatians. This was a letter, a letter that the Apostle Paul wrote to the Galatians. So these were Celts. They lived in the area in the east of Turkey, up towards the Black Sea, where there's a great range of the Celtic family. They're also connected to the Irish, to the Scots, to the English as well, to those of the northern countries as well there of Europe. They're all, uh, they're all a part of the Celtic family. But I want you to recognize that the Sabbath was kept by many of these Celtic believers. Now, we know that the Galatians, those part of the Celtic family found in the book of of, uh, Galatians, were certainly Sabbath keepers. But this quote here, this comes from a book called The History of Scotland by Andrew Lang. And he says this, Sabbath was observed by the Celtic church in Scotland during when? He says the 11th century, 11th century. This is six or 700 years after the edict of Emperor Constantine. He says the Sabbath was observed by the Celtic church in Scotland during the 11th century AD. They worked on Sunday, but kept Saturday in a sabbatical manner. That's from the History of Scotland by Andrew Lang. This is a continuation. He says, They seem to have followed a custom which we find traces in the early monastic church in Ireland by which they held Saturday to be the Sabbath on which they rested from their labours. So they got the teaching of the Sabbath, that is the Scots, from the Irish. The Irish were Sabbath keepers themselves. Let's move on now. In 1069, there was a wedding, a very famous wedding, in fact, and it was the union of Queen Margaret of England and Malcolm of Scotland. Now, Malcolm was a a Scot and recognised the importance of the Seventh-day Sabbath, where you have Queen Margaret, who was a Catholic. And when the union was complete, she endeavoured to eradicate Uh, Sabbath-keeping, Sabbath-keeping Celtic Christianity from Scotland and to unite it with the Church of Rome. And this is what uh, we read in a book by Alphaeus uh, Belasheim in his History of the Catholic Church of Scotland. He says this, The Queen further protested against the prevailing abuse of Sunday desecration. Let us, she said, venerate the Lord's day inasmuch upon it our Saviour rose from the dead. Now, what's the reason she gives for Sunday keeping? It's the resurrection of Jesus Christ. Let us do no servile work on that day. The Scots in this matter had no doubt kept up their traditional practice of the ancient monastic church of Ireland, which observed Saturday rather than Sunday as the day of rest. So again, the the focal point here for Margaret, Queen Margaret, is the fact that you have Christians worshipping on the Sabbath, but she wants to institute the day Sunday, the child of the papacy. This is from a book called The Church in Scotland by James Clement Moffat. He says this, 
It seems to have been customary in the Celtic churches or the Celtic churches of early times in Ireland as well as Scotland to keep Saturday, the Jewish Sabbath, as a day of rest from labor. They obeyed the fourth commandment literally upon the seventh day of the week, which we know is Saturday. You see, the the history books are overwhelming in their um, support that Sabbath keepers were were dominating in Scotland and in Ireland, particularly in Scotland, right up until the 12th century. But where did they get that from? They got it from the Bible. They got it from Jesus Christ. They got it from the disciples themselves. Uh, this is by Turgo. Turgo is the biography biographer of Queen Margaret. He says this, it was another custom of theirs, that is the Scots, to neglect the reverence due to the Lord's Day Sunday by devoting themselves to every kind of worldly business upon it, just as they did upon other days. That this was contrary to the law, she, Queen Margaret, proved to them as well as by reason as by authority, let us venerate the Lord's Day because of the resurrection of our Lord. Now, I just want to go back. In our previous study, we saw that the Lord's Day is what day? It's the Sabbath day, the day we call Saturday. But in the Catholic mind, it is Sunday. And in the large part of Protestantism as well, it's the day we call Sunday, but it doesn't line up with the Bible. Nevertheless, she says, let us venerate the Lord's day because of the resurrection of our Lord, which happened upon that day. And let us no longer do servile works upon it, bearing in mind that upon this day, we were redeemed from the slavery of the devil. The blessed Pope Gregory affirms the same. Yes, tradition affirms the same, not the Bible. As I said, the Sabbath was kept far and wide throughout Europe and beyond the reaches of the Roman Empire for over a thousand years after the time of Emperor Constantine. Now, what I want to do is I want to turn our attention to Sabbath-keeping Christians in the heart of uh, mainland, uh, beg your pardon, the continent of Europe itself. We've looked at those on the fringes, but I want to look now at the continent of Europe itself. And it's quite enlightening what you discover as you go to the ancient sources. See, Sabbath-keepers were found everywhere. This is in relation to Sabbath-keepers in Holland. It says this, Dr. Cornelius stated of East Friesland. Now, East Friesland is what we would call the northwest of Germany on the coast. It says, Dr. Cornelius stated of East Friesland that when Baptists were numerous, Sunday and holy days were not observed. They were what? What does it say there? It says that they were Sabbath keepers. Notice this, the Sabbath in France. Barbara of Thiers, or of Tears, who was executed in 1529, declared God has commanded us to rest on the seventh day. Now, why, did she, why was she persecuted? Why was she killed? It was because of her belief in the authority of Scripture and also the seventh day Sabbath. Another martyr, Christina Tolongeren, is mentioned thus. Other holy days have been instituted by popes, cardinals and 
archbishops. In other words, the holy days that are practiced by Christianity in Europe, the, the main state church of Christianity, he says, she says, they're just the workings of men. They don't have any biblical authority whatsoever. This is the uh, Sabbath being kept in Sweden and in Finland. Very interesting because it says, in the district of Uppsala, the farmers kept Saturday in the place of Sunday. About the year 1625, this religious tendency became so pronounced in these countries that not only large numbers of the common people began to keep Saturday as a rest day, but what does it say there? But even many priests did the same. You see... It's very clear as we study this material that Sabbath keeping was widespread. Now, this is over 1,300 years after the Council of Laodicea, after the ecclesiastical seal of approval was placed upon Sunday keeping. Question. Have any of you heard of the Saracens? Yeah? Okay. Who were they? Who were the Saracens? All right. Well, they were Turks. They, are, they were Arabians. They were um, devotees of Islam, followers of Muhammad. And around 620 AD, when Muhammad began conquering, he took over the, the Arabian Peninsula in the Middle East. And we see that as, as Muhammadism, as Islam spread, it went to the northern portions of Africa and also into uh, the southern part of Spain itself. And you see that it came down and it Descended down the Horn of Africa. Now, this is very important in our study tonight because we also see that that place where the Roman, uh, where, beg your pardon, where the Saracens, where the Muslims included, it uh, reached the border of a place called Abyssinia. Now, Abyssinia is what we call modern uh, Ethiopia today. And it's very interesting when you look what happened with the rise of uh, Muhammad and uh, Islam, the way that the, the Muslims actually protected many Christians in remote areas. They didn't do it intentionally, but it was just because of the fear that the Christians in Western Europe had regarding the, uh, the, uh, the Islamic faith that kept the other Christians safe from being interfered by the state church, the Roman Catholic Church. But this is a work that I'm going to read from you now. Uh, it was written around 1625 or thereabouts. It's by a man called Michael Geddes, and he he did a church history on Ethiopia. But this is what he said. He says, and he's actually quoting why these people keep the Sabbath. He says, because God, after he had finished the creation of the world, rested thereon, which day as God would have it called the Holy of Holies, so not celebrating thereof with great honor and devotion seems to be plainly contrary to God's will and precept who will suffer heaven and earth to pass away sooner than his word, and that especially since Christ came not to dissolve the law, but to fulfill it. It is not therefore in imitation of the Jews, but in obedience to Christ and his holy apostles that we observe this day. You see, the Abyssinians knew about the Sabbath. 
They received the Sabbath prior to the time of Christ, but now we're learning here that the Abyssinians also continued to keep the Sabbath in honour of the creative act in the beginning, as recorded in Genesis chapter 1 and Genesis chapter 2, but also because of the missionary exploits of Christ's followers after the time of the resurrection. Does that make sense? You see, as I said, the Sabbath was widespread. Now, there's a very famous historian. His name is Edward Gibbon, and he was an English historian of the 18th century. He wrote the remarkable work called The Decline and Fall of the Roman Empire, and he himself uh, talks about the Sabbath-keeping Christians in Ethiopia. Now, this is what he says. He says, encompassed on all sides by the enemies of their religion, the Ethiopians slept near a thousand years, forgetful of the world by whom they were forgotten. And when discovered by the Portuguese in the 16th century, they were found making the seventh day the day of rest. What's the seventh day? It is the Sabbath. It says, not having known of its being, full, being set aside fully in the course of, what's that last word there? Apostasy. The Jesuit priests never rested until they persuaded the Abyssinian king in AD 1604 to submit to the Pope and to prohibit Sabbath observance. Isn't that incredible? Absolutely incredible. It's interesting that so many groups so far spread across the face of North Africa, Europe, into uh, uh, Britannia and the like were all Sabbath keepers. And the Sabbath was kept by those people who were isolated away from the Roman Catholic Church. The reality is that even a cursory study of history shows us that Sabbath keeping thrived until the 12th century in Scotland, in Ireland, in other places, and into the 16th century in other parts of the world as well, despite the draconian laws against Sabbath keepers which were instituted by the Roman Catholic Church and the state itself. There's a remarkable extract here about Sabbath keepers and its spread in France itself. It says this, referring to the Sabbath keepers, the spread of heresy at this time is almost incredible. From northern France to the Tiber, everywhere we meet them. Now, this is during the time of the Reformation, the 15th and the 16th century Reformation. From northern France to the Tiber, everywhere we meet them, whole countries that are infested like Hungary and southern France. They abound in many other countries, in Germany, in Italy, in the Netherlands, and even in England, they put forth their efforts. See, during the period of the Dark Ages, Sabbath continued to be honoured and those Sabbath keepers were persecuted and they were persecuted relentlessly right up to the time of the 16th century Reformation. This is from Dr. Cock. He wrote a book called The Literary of of the Sabbath Question. And he says this, and uh, he was an 18th century historian as well. And by the way, he's saying, well, why are we going to so many old sources? You know why? You know why? Because history has been rewritten. You don't get this information anymore because of the apostasy that we see in Christianity. But this is Dr. Cox. He wrote this around 1860. He says this, I find from a passage in Erasmus that at the early period of the Reformation when he wrote, there were Sabbatarians in Bohemia. Where's Bohemia? Czechoslovakia today 
who not only kept the seventh day, but were said to be scrupulous in resting upon it. As I said, and I've said it many times, the Sabbath was kept and continued to shine those centuries despite the best efforts of the Roman Catholic Church, the Inquisition and the Jesuits to wipe it out. Even as far as India and even as far as China. Now, I've just about finished. I know this has been a long session, but there's important material that you, I want you to be aware of so that you understand that you have not followed the cunningly devised fables of men when you are in, your, in the process of accepting the Sabbath as God's day that he desires for you to worship on. You see, the Apostle John and the Apostle Luke and the Apostle Andrew and the Apostle Thomas and all of the Apostles, they're obedient to Jesus Christ's words when he says in Matthew chapter 28 verses 19 and 20 to take the gospel to the world. Jesus says go and they went and they went as far as they possibly could and in fact there's good evidence that the Apostle Thomas known as the doubter even went as far as India and may have reached the borders of China itself in establishing Sabbath-keeping churches. Uh, this is a quote from Neil, a history of Christianity in the, the Holy Eastern Church. And he says this, It is the constant tradition of the Eastern Church that the Apostle Thomas evangelized India and there is no historian, no poet, no bravery, no liturgy, and no writer of any kind who having the opportunity of speaking of Thomas does not associate his name with India. Isn't that interesting? He went as far as India, but many people believe he went further east than that. Many people believe he actually went to China. This is from a historical work. What we're going to read now is called Christianity in China, Tashri and Tibet. It's written by a man by the name of uh, M. L. Abe Huck. He was actually a priest of the Roman Catholic Church and was born in France. But in his study of Sabbath keepers, this is what he discovered. He said, all the Greek, Latin and Syriac monuments proclaim that Thomas was the apostle of the Indies who carried the torch of faith into the remote regions where he suffered martyrdom. Some writers have affirmed that he prosecuted his apostolic labors as far as where? As far as, uh, as far as China. Now, look what happened. When the doors were opened to the Jesuits in 1560 and uh, what they discovered Christians were doing in 1560 in China and also in India, it says this, the famous Jesuit uh, Francis Xavier called for the Inquisition, which was set up in Goa, India in 1560 to check the Jewish wickedness, Sabbath keeping. So it's not attacking Jews, it's talking about Christians who embraced Sabbath keeping and had been doing that for over 1600 years since the time of the Apostle Thomas. And this is incredible information that we're seeing tonight. In fact, when you go to China, if you study the history of the Christian church in China, it's quite remarkable that the Christian church thrived in China for at least the first eight centuries. And they're all Sabbath keepers. There was found a famous marble tablet 
which became known as the China Monument. It was found in Chang'an in 1625. They discovered as they examined this marble stone that it was actually written. The Masons had worked on it around about 781 AD and it contained 763 words. Now remember, many people believe that Thomas and others, Sabbath-keeping Christians, made their way to China. Notice what this uh, marvellous monument says regarding Christianity. It says, on the seventh day, what day? On the seventh day. They're recognising the Sabbath. On the seventh day, we offer sacrifices. And after having purified our hearts and received absolution for our sins, this religion so perfect and so excellent is difficult to name, but it enlightens darkness by its brilliant precepts. Isn't that incredible? In China, up to the 8th century, we learn that there were Sabbath-keeping Christians at that time. If I was to ask you now, just in closing, who was the most famous Irish uh, Christian that you're aware of? Many people would say it's referring to, of course, Patrick of Ireland, and that would be a good answer. But there are others. In fact, there are hundreds of others. There was a man by the name of Columba, Columba of Iona. Did you know that he and Patrick were both Sabbath keepers, as was Aidan of Aslinda's farm? They were all Sabbath keepers. And remember that we saw that Scotland continued to keep the Sabbath right up until the 12th century in the time of Queen Margaret. Uh, Here's a very interesting quote regarding, and it reflects the work of Patrick, and it reflects the work of Columba and Aidan, who were all Sabbath keepers and shared the faith of Jesus Christ in that part of the world. It says this by Barnett T. Radcliffe. It says, The Scots in this matter had no doubt kept up the traditional practice of the ancient monastic church of Ireland, which observed Sabbath rather than Sunday as a day of rest. You see, you you need to understand that Patrick was not a Catholic. He was actually a Celtic Christian. He was a Sabbath-keeping Christian, as was hundreds and hundreds and thousands and thousands of other Christians in Ireland and Scotland and England. They believed, as many of us do, or that I believe, that the Sabbath day is still in place, that we are saved by grace. And it's no wonder that they, uh, they worked and they ministered and they did missionary activity at the peril of their own lives when we can see how... how, how how different it was from the works-based religion of the Roman Catholic Church. There's one last thing, one final last, last thing that I want you to understand. There are many people today who say that they worship Sunday in in honour of the resurrection. They call it the Lord's Day. Now, we already know that that's not the case. We already know that Sabbath is the Lord's Day. But they honour the uh, Sunday in honour of the resurrection But you know what? When you study the Bible, you actually see that baptism is the way that we honour the resurrection. These these are the words of the Apostle Paul. And we're talking about uh, baptism by immersion here. Romans chapter chapter 6 verse 3 says this, Do you not know that as many of us were baptised into Christ Jesus, were baptised into his what? into his death verse 4 therefore we were buried with him through baptism into unto death that just as Christ was raised from the 
dead by the glory of the Father. Even so, we should walk in newness of life. Did you understand that? Did you get it? When a person is baptized by immersion, they're standing in the water in the old life. They go down. It represents the death of Jesus Christ. And as they come up in the new life, it's a commencement of a new life in Jesus Christ. You see, baptism by immersion is a biblical method of honoring the resurrection of Jesus Christ, not Sunday keeping. So we've traveled a long, long way tonight. We've gone, we've traveled from Scotland and Ireland all the way across to China. We've seen Sabbath keepers the world over for over a thousand, sixteen hundred years. But I want to ask you, with all this information, can you see, does it make sense to you? Can you see that Sunday was never the day that God intended for people to worship? And though the majority of people today worship on Sunday, it doesn't mean that this is the way that it's always happened. Does that make sense? Put up your hand if that makes sense. Raise your hand also if you believe that God wants you to keep the Sabbath day holy. God bless you all. God bless you. As I said, there's information that you'll receive as you go out tonight. Very interesting information, which will add a bit more flesh to the bone of this study. Now, next week, what we're going to be looking at, we're going to be looking at our topic, Armageddon and the Gathering of the Kings, because this topic next week includes every man, woman and child on planet Earth. For those people who are watching this, live streaming it or watching it on YouTube, you can order all the materials by going to the address which is on the screen now, theorchardmelbourne.org.au. Go to the uh, contact us session and place the requirements that you want and we'll send those straight out to you uh, as quickly as we possibly can. All right, well... We've had a good night tonight. We've covered a lot of ground. But why don't we close our time in prayer now? Father in heaven, we want to thank you, Father, for Jesus Christ, our Lord and Saviour. We thank you for your love, for your mercy and your goodness to us. And I pray, Father, that you'll bless us as we uh, go our separate ways now. We thank you for the truth of your word and the fact that history verifies the fact that the Sabbath was important right up into the 16th and the 17th centuries. And we're glad that as we've reviewed history, we've seen so many people who've desired to be true and faithful to your word. And now as each one of us go our separate way, I pray that you will protect them, bless them as they, and uh, bring them back safely here next week. In the name of Jesus Christ, I pray. Amen. Amen. This message was made available by the Orchard Melbourne Central City Church. For more resources like this, visit theorchardmelbourne.org.au. You've been listening to Go Teach All Nations here on 3ABN Australia Radio. Enjoy the short presentation on the history of the Reformation from lineagejourney.com.
Here in Geneva, the Reformers' Wall commemorates the role that this city played in the Protestant Reformation. The city became a refuge for many of the hunted reformers of Western Europe. John Knox from Scotland spent several years here. And the Protestants of Holland and Spain and the Huguenots from France all sought refuge here in the city, but then carried the gospel from here elsewhere. Indeed, this city has often been referred to as the Protestant Rome. The city publicly accepted the Reformed faith on the 21st of May, 1536. And while Farrell was a key player in the Reformation here, it was Calvin that would make this city famous. Some have referred to Calvin as the international reformer. Such was his influence beyond the boundaries of the city limits. The central idea that Calvin developed was that a consistent and coherent theological system could be derived and defended on the basis of the Bible. Calvin's greatest legacy was arguably not any doctrine, but rather a demonstration of how the Bible could serve as a foundation of a stable understanding of Christian belief and structures. Another key thing that Calvin did for this city was founding the University of Geneva in 1559. Calvin had a huge sway of influence over the notable men and women of that time in the 1600s. His influence spread to England, Scotland, France, Germany. It was far reaching. In fact, from this city, over 1,700 preachers were sent out to France alone. 1,785 congregations were formed in the country of France. And the preachers that were trained here had to secretly make their way over to France. They used an underground network system, similar to the one used by the French during the resistance in World War II. They would sneak across the border and they would make their way from house to house until they reached their place of work in the country of France. One of the greatest things to happen here in Geneva was the publishing of the Geneva Bible, the first English version that had numbered verses in it. The theme of the Reformation here in Geneva was post-Tenebrax looks, meaning after darkness light. And truly, a lesson we can learn from the Reformation here was that when God's Word is studied, when it is read, it takes the darkness of our minds away and brings light. May we study God's Word. May we spend time in God's Word that the darkness of our minds may be removed by the light of God's Word. Episodes in this series on the Reformation, go to lineagejourney.com. This program has been brought to you by 3ABN Australia Radio.